You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Father Paul explains that in Genesis, with respect to their behavior, human beings must follow the lead of the sea animals. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. I have spoken enough about the connection between the human beings and the land animals. It's very clear already on the sixth day. And then I mentioned the fact that the first occurrence of mishpacha in the plural mishpachot, which is translated as families, groupings, actually applies to the animals. And then it applies also to the human beings. But when I discussed Genesis 1, I have shown that what is interesting very early on is that the sea animals that were created on day 5, their creation presages the creation and or making of the human being. Because the verb bara which people always, theologians, stress that it is used specifically of the human being on day six, is actually used in conjunction with the sea animals, and more precisely with the Taninim, the monsters, the sea monsters, Gedolim, which is very strange. And also, and I detail this in my book, that with the human being, you have a kind of, shall I call it, reticence. Although, in verse 27, we hear three times God created bara, man in his own image, in the image of God, he created bara, him, male and female, he created them. And all you have to do is to read the silly theological books and the whole ado about it. But the author intelligently, in verse 26, which precedes 27, when God expresses his deliberation as to how he will deal with the human being, the Hebrew says, let us make from Asa man in our image after our likeness. So the hearer is struck by the fact that although God bara created the sea monsters earlier, suddenly he's deliberating how to make the human being, which is the verb that was used earlier to speak about the sun and the moon and the waters and so on. So, again, 
you heard me enough about my approach. The main thing is not to theologize, because theology is already in your mind. It's not taken out of scripture. You have your theology set up, and then you throw scriptural texts. But if you follow the story, I prefer to use story more than narrative, because narrative has become a noun that is used today about your narrative, my narrative, Trump's narrative, Biden's narrative, and so on. Let me stick with story. So you have a flow. A story flows. You may not read chapter 10 before chapter 6. You may not listen to line 10 before line 4 or page five before page three. So this is striking. And ultimately in my book, I'm not going to speak about this in detail now, it prepares, uh, I'm convinced, the book of Jonah, which forms the bridge between the Old and the New Testament, where we have suddenly the mention of the big fish, which is the same word that is used in the Septuagint in Genesis and in Jonah, but I'm not going to go down that road. But still, it's important that the sea animals, and more specifically the Taninim, were created by God before the human being. So to your ear, let me go back to my previous example. To your ear, the family, the grouping of human beings, is patterned after the groupings of the land animals, and not vice versa. It's not that the author is projecting the human understanding of family on the animals the way you do with your pets. I mean, it may be so, but in the story, it is not so. It is the human groupings that are patterned after the groupings of the land animals. And here we have something similar, that the human beings are created slash made the way you hearer have heard that the great sea monsters were made and thus created. And let me end by pointing out that the tension between God's deliberation regarding man in verse 26, that he's deliberating, making the human being, and then he created the human being, is intensified by the fact that in verse 26 we have Adam, and in verse 27 we have Ha-Adam. Obviously, for the English reader or hearer, what is the big deal? For me, it is a big deal that we have a switch there. It is as though the author is inviting you to realize that when he was dealing with the human being, God had already a situation where he behaved in a certain way. And now we have the same thing. Again, not with the land animals, but with the sea animals. And this will become very important in Jonah, where the author refers to that 
great fish translated in English, but we don't have tannin in Hebrew. But what is interesting, and I developed this in my book, the author has the same kitos, which is the singular of the kita that is used on the fourth day in Genesis 1.21. So already the author is setting you up to accept the fact that ultimately it is, which I'm about to show, that the human beings are to take the cue, the lead from the behavior of the sea animals in order to be the regular human beings that God wanted them to be. The importance of that I'll discuss at the end of my presentation. In Genesis 1, the root sharas or sharats is restricted to the sea animals in verses 20 and 21. Twice as a verb, sharats, and once as a noun, sherets, which is usually translated as swarming. Let me read you the translation of the RSV. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms. Let the water yishrosu, living creatures, shares. So we have the doubling swarms of swarming beings and let the birds fly above the earth across the firmament of the heavens. So this root sharas applies to the sea animals, not even to the birds that were made the same day as the sea animals. And then the text proceeds, so God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm sharasu according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. You notice how the author separates between the sea animals and the fowl of the air. If we jump to chapter 7 in conjunction with the flood, we hear and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, birds, cattle, beasts, all swarming creatures, shares that swarm, shores, upon the earth, and every man, everything on the dry land, Haraba, in whose nostrils was the breath, the breeze of the spirit of life, died. So here suddenly in chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, we hear that all the animal realm, except for the human being in these verses, behave like the sea animals, behave the way the sea animals behaved. And all these died in whom there was the breeze of life. Now, 
In chapter 8, verse 17, just to proceed with the story of the flood, we hear, bring forth, which is the same verb that was used in Genesis 1, to bring forth, okay, about the sea animals and the waters and bring forth with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, which is behemoth, and every creeping thing, remes, that creeps, romes on the earth, that they may breed abundantly, sharasu. You see, the English just is totally misleading. There is no reference to the original verbs that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth in 8.17. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, suddenly the animals or the animal's behavior is patterned after the behavior of the sea animals that was already established in Genesis 1. And that's very important because the sea animals are non-functional in the story of the plant. That's the technical knockout. That the text is saying, you living beings upon the land, after I saved you from the waters of the seas, with which the sea animals didn't have to deal. Now, you better behave in your breeding abundantly the way the sea animals behaved. And as if this was not enough, and here comes the technical knockout, which is totally eliminated in the translations, all of them. Let's hear it in the English, and when I get to the, my point, I'll say it in Hebrew. And God blessed Noah and his sons. This is chapter 9, verses 1 and 7. And said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which is exactly as we heard in Genesis 1. But then a few verses later. And you, be fruitful and multiply. And he's talking to Noah and his sons. Bring forth abundantly. Now hear it in Hebrew, shirsu on the earth and multiply in it. It is an impressive text, this flood story. So, what remained of the living beings on the land, beginning with the animals and ending with the human beings, are shrewdly invited to behave like the sea animals. And when they become, quote, unquote, like the sea animals, then the flood cannot do anything against them. What a technical knockout. But they have to live this life on land, not in the sea. The text is not asking them to become sea animals. This happens in the stories for children and everybody became sea animals. That's why God was able to keep his promise not to destroy 
the human beings through waters. No, in the Bible we are still on that level. But it is the behavior, the how, and that, as I said, will become important. You read about it in my book, in the book of Jonah. And this connection between the Taninim or the fish, the sea animals in Genesis 1 and in Jonah is unique in the Bible. And I'll take so many pages in my book to point this out. So my first comment is that it is by any means impossible for a hearer of RSV as well as KJV and new RSV to even detect the interplay in the original. Okay, the only exception is the German that uses the same verb, but it can never render the meaning of the cognate noun, sheres. Notice in the Hebrew, we have the verb sharas, and we have the noun sheres to underscore that. So, the animals, as I said, have to be remes and also swarm sharas. But with the human being, obviously, creeping on the earth, which is ramus, you know, is not used. But as I showed you earlier, the root sharas is very important and a reminder. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.